Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and we've got a, a great show for you tonight. We've got a couple of uh, great uh, pros joining me here on the Coach's Corner panel here in just a moment. And then a little bit later on, my special guest is going to be Charlie Meacham, the uh, former LPGA commissioner and author of a book called Arnie and Jack. He'll be uh, joining me a little bit later on in the broadcast to talk about uh, what went into the book and some of his experiences uh, with both of these uh, legends of the game. So looking forward to speaking with Charlie a little bit later on. And um, But as always, we're going to start off with uh, Coach's Corner. Uh, and let me just introduce the uh, the two gentlemen that are going to be joining. First up is John Hughes, uh, PGA Master Professional and Honorary President of the North Florida's PGA Section. Uh, in 2013, he was the recipient of the PGA of America's Horton Smith Award. Uh, he's a senior editor and uh, Golf Tips Top 25 instructor, plus part of the uh, Golf Tips advisory staff. Uh, also joining in the panel is John Decker, Director of Instruction at the Medallion Club in Columbus, Ohio. He's also a senior editor and Top 25 instructor at Golf Tips Magazine. 2015, he was named South, Southern Ohio Teacher of the Year and authored the book Golf Is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, which, of course, includes a Bible study. And he's also available for public speaking upon request. So definitely at the end of the show when he gives you uh, his contact information, you may want to reach out. Um, guys, uh, welcome to the Coach's Corner panel here on Golf Talk Live. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, Ted. All right. Well, I appreciate it, guys, as always, uh, giving of your time. It's uh Sometimes it's difficult, as we were we were just talking about a few moments before we went live. Um, and John, I know that you're going to be uh, sorry, Hughes. I'm going to start with you for a second, but um, you're going to be heading up uh, in a month or so's time. Uh, you're going to be heading up to where? I'll be heading up to Macklemore, which is located in Rising Fawn, Georgia, or, or in other words, uh, Lookout Mountain, Georgia. It's a fantastic private facility that's being revitalized into a private resort, uh, a curio by Hilton called the Cloudland being built, a brand-new golf course called the Outpost, which is going to be absolutely phenomenal. Uh, they already have a top 100 course with a top 10 finishing hole in all the world. was there in June and been invited back in October and uh, have some really interesting and exciting plans with them over the next couple of years. And if you're interested in joining me up there, there's uh, in my store, johnhughesgolf.com slash store, you can get all the details. Uh, there are still some dates available. 
a fantastic place to learn how to play golf and just enjoy what they call life above the clouds in October, watching the leaves turn. should be a lot of fun. Sounds good. Um, all right, so, John, I'm going to start with you um, on our discussion tonight. And a couple things. These are really tips, I think, that apply to really any golfer. Um, and so I think what we'll do is we'll kind of approach this a couple of ways. Um, it's sort of hit from a beginner standpoint, maybe an intermediate player, and then obviously a top-level player as well. And as most of the top-level players know this already, but so we'll, we'll sort of approach this particular first question um, for some of the less advanced golfers, and that is um, the ability, if you will, to play the right equipment. This is an area, I think, one of the best uh, golf tips that, that you can learn over the years to start playing right away from the get-go, regardless of what level you're shooting at, is to make sure you're utilizing the right equipment. And there's three areas that I want you to cover. One is the golf clubs. The other is, uh, which is obviously part of the golf club, is the shaft, the importance of having uh, being fitted for the right shaft. And then also uh, the golf ball itself. So, uh, Mr. Hughes, I'm going to let you go ahead and have the floor. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for the opportunity for the little plug. I appreciate that. And as always, thanks for allowing me the opportunity to share some wisdom, knowledge, and a lot of fun with your audience. John, it's always an honor to be on with you. Um, you. You gave it to us in an order that I would reverse the first two, the shaft and the club. Uh, the club itself, based on the shaft, is really key. Uh, as a, From a beginner standpoint, I think you and John will agree that we see a lot of people start with clubs that are too heavy. And mm -hmm. too heavy can mean a lot of different things. For a junior, as much as you may want to cut down an adult's club, that is too heavy. But for an adult, too heavy could be too long, too stiff, uh, believe it or not, too flexible, can create too heavy. Uh, what this does to an absolute beginner, it's, it starts creating habits in your swing, whether you realize it or not, to have you swing the club. It, it becomes more of an effort than it should be to swing the club. Uh, with young, young kids, particularly ones that grew up playing cutoff clubs, you'll see them early release the club casting at the top. They have a hard time setting the club. They don't necessarily pull wrist hinge on the way back. They flip through impact. They can't get finished. They fall over, uh, maybe tilt towards the target at the top of the swing, and it's all in an effort to keep balance, keep them from falling over. Uh, that's, that's the biggest thing that I see from my end is – Putting a club in your hand from a fitting standpoint of view that isn't too heavy, but from a shaft standpoint of view, uh, let's make sure the flex is correct because if that flex is too flexible and in most cases it becomes too stiff, you just can't get the ball airborne. You can't advance it. Those are the two big things that beginners want to do. And, and the too heavy a shaft just, just makes it that much more complicated too whippy a shaft, too light a shaft, you may get it up in the air, but it creates so much spin it gets too high up in the air, particularly if you're flipping through impact, and then all of a sudden you're concerned with how far it's going. How do you get fit? It's really easy. Let's not get over complicated. Let's not 
spend a lot of money on all this. But let's just make sure that the length is correct, the flex is appropriate in a general sense for who you are and how fast you swing the club. And I think if you do those two, two things, particularly with your shaft, the club turns out to be okay. Uh, ball, make sure you're hitting a ball that's soft enough you can compress and have a dimple pattern that reduces spin. Uh, the more reduction of spin, the straighter that ball's going to go for you. You may lose some height, but there are golf balls out there made for beginners that allow you to compress it a little bit better. Their, their dimple patterns are such that if you cut across it in any way, it sort of reduces your quote-unquote side spin, makes the game just a little bit easier. Very well said. Let me uh, just sort of a quick follow-up question you know, obviously, there's a lot of decision-making going on here for a player, uh, again, regardless of uh, what level. Obviously, the better players, um, you know, have the ability. They've played a lot. They understand what their needs are and what their abilities are. So it's a little bit easier of a transition for them into the right equipment. And, of course, they have access, especially on the tour level, have access to some of the best people in the business uh, to be able to fit properly. Um, but... For the average Joe out there, if you will, this is a conversation that they should be having with their local pro, correct? Absolutely. Uh, your local pro should be able to identify the basic needs initially that you have. Um, a, a great example, we do a beginner clinic called Operation 36 at Falcons Fire. Most people show up needing rental clubs, and once we see them, it becomes pretty obvious the rental club most often used is a regular flex shaft and most likely a graphite if I have it available simply to make it easier to get the ball in the air and move forward. But then when somebody consults me about, oh, I want to buy some clubs, I will literally sit down with them and discuss their budget, discuss how often they plan to play, how often they plan to practice, and try to find something in a very generic way that's going to fit them where they're not going to get frustrated over having the wrong equipment in their hand. I see too many times somebody will come for a series of lessons and they have this antiquated bag of clubs that was given to them or they bought online or on eBay and it's just so ill-fit. As soon as I go to the rental sets and, and get something at that somewhat close or not exact, all of a sudden there's a big difference. And a really right. good coach is going to be able to identify that and immediately help you with that. Also, a really good coach shouldn't be a salesperson trying to sell you the clubs. They should be suggesting by having you try and have and educating you. Uh, that That's a real key. Most people are scared about that, and I try to take that away right away and, and say, look, it's not about selling you a set of golf clubs. It's about putting the right equipment in your hand so you can get the job done. And typically I'm um, uh, comparing that to what they do for a living and the tools they use. And, and right away, right. the aha moment happens. Yeah, it's important to have that discussion. And I think also, too, um, you know, a lot of uh, uh, areas, uh, courses, what have you, um, You'll often find, and this is something that you can have a conversation with um, your your pro as well, 
is uh, a lot of them have, in, certainly in most areas, uh, demo days where a number of manufacturers may come out. It might be a good idea if it's open to public, obviously, which most of them are, um, except for certain ones, but um, have them come out and actually visit some of these demo days and try out a variety of different equipment um, because they can make changes right there on the fly. A lot of the manufacturers will come there. They can uh, change out shafts, things very, very quickly, um, and let you uh, try different things and then go back and have that conversation, you know, maybe with your pro. I've tried this and tried that. That might be uh, something as well that you might want to consider when doing that. Mr. Decker, I'm going to come to you. We've got to move forward here, and we're going to talk about uh, another area I think that's uh, very important that a lot of uh, golfers of all levels really, obviously, again, the, the pros are a different level than the rest of us, but um, is really, well, most players want to golf tips to hit it further and figure out how to hit all kinds of trick shots. Um, we can't forget the fundamentals. Um, and three areas that I'm going to have you focus on, and again, you can do them in any order. I'm just going to read them out in this order, is the stance, the posture, and also uh, finding the right grip for you. Um, talk about those three a little bit, maybe expand on them, um, what we can do, what you maybe do in your um, uh, teaching and that to, to make sure that those three areas are being covered. Well, first of all, Ted, thank you uh, for having me on the show. And John, as always, I always enjoy being on with you. I always feel like I learned something when I'm on the show with you. Um, this is a great question, Ted. You know, starting out, the first thing of those three that I would probably look at is the grip. Um, the grip is how our connection to the golf club. And the main thing that you want to do is hold the club in the fingers. You do not want to get the club in the palms of the hand. Uh, and you think about other sports that you play. You know, when you shoot at basketball, you hold the basketball in your fingertips. You're taught to use your fingertips, not your palm. When you throw a baseball, you hold the, the baseball in your fingers. You do not hold the baseball in your palm. If I tried to squeeze a golf ball as, as tight as I can and throw it, I couldn't throw it anywhere. If I were going to throw a golf ball, I would hold it in my fingers. So that's the first thing. And then, uh, you know, there's a lot of videos out there. I've got videos on my website on the grip. If you go to DeckerGolf.com, you can, you, can, you can check out the videos about how, how to hold the club. But the main thing is, is getting the club in the fingers, getting the, the pad of the left, if you're a right-handed player, getting the pad of that left hand um, on top of the club and the fingers underneath. And then um, you want to kind of create two Vs with the thumb and the index finger. And I know that over the, uh, for a podcast, this may be difficult for the, for the okay. listeners out there. But when you're holding the club in the fingers, if, if the Vs are pointing to the right shoulder, if you're a right-handed player uh, and they're parallel to each other, you're pretty much on the right track. And so I think John would agree, and I think, Ted, you as well, as when mm -hmm. you've worked with new players, the first instinct is to squeeze the club in the palm. And so if you do that, that's where you're going to lose all your power and most likely hit the ball to the right. As far as the posture goes, there's, you know, the, the posture really starts with the feet, where your feet are, because if your feet uh, are in the wrong spot, if you have too wide of a stance or too narrow of a stance or if you're too far from the ball or too close from the ball, it's going to affect your posture. So assuming that you're the right distance from the ball and you have the right, correct stance width, then I look at the knees and the hips and the shoulders and how they line up. And so the sensation that I like to tell all of my 
students is I want you uh, all to have the sensation that you're going to dive into a swimming pool. You're right up on the edge of the swimming pool. You're going to dive into the swimming pool. You would have the weight in the balls of your feet. You would bend over from the waist. You would bend over from the knees. And then you would have a kind of a forward lean, so just about ready to dive in the pool, but you're not going to go in the pool. That's the sensation that you have so that, um, you know, you're getting your weight down to the ball with your, your upper body, you know, when you bend over from the waist, it's, it's pointing more down to the ball. So it's very important um, that you, you know, assess and have the right uh, amount of flex in the knees and the hips, and that's all going to be based on the club you're using. Obviously, a driver is a much longer club, so I'm going to have a more upright stance. Uh, if I'm using a putter, I'm going to be bending over more because it's the shortest club in the bag for most, for most golfers. So your posture will be affected by the club you use as well. And then the stance, um, you know, I alluded to that. The stance and the posture are directly related. But the main thing that you're looking for in the stance is, is that you create uh, two parallel lines. You have a, a target line, which is a line going from the ball to the target, and then you have a line that's parallel to that, and that is your stance width. So that's your stance of your, when you're get, getting your feet, your knees, your hips, your shoulders. You're trying to get all of those parallel to that target line. So if you look out on the PGA Tour, the number one teaching device on the PGA Tour is an alignment stick. I recommend all my students carry an alignment stick, put it in your bag, uh, put it down on the ground, and they're simply those sticks that up here in the north we use to line our driveways when the snow comes. Uh, but you can buy them at the uh, home improvement stores for a couple of dollars, and they'll really help you uh, in, in your alignment when you're out on the golf course. So those are some, some uh, areas that, that the listeners out there, if they can address, and, and I would encourage you to uh, go see your local teacher, your local PJ uh, golf professional, and have them address those three things if you're going to be learning the game. Well said. Just a quick follow-up, too. I think it's important, um, particularly for the um, not just the posture but the stance. You know, we often see a lot of amateur players um, where, again, either they're too wide or too narrow, and their lines are not parallel. Their target line and their um, their actual body alignment is either going towards one another or actually um, very open uh, to the target line. And having an open stance on some circumstances if you're playing a particular shot, can be okay, but generally you want to be square to your target line, correct? Yeah, that is correct. Uh, you know, technically, uh, if you look at the hips, uh, the hips are about five degrees open and the shoulders are parallel to the target line, but for the average golfer out there, you want everything to be parallel to the target line. Uh, that's, that's a good starting point. I will say this when it comes to the stance, um, is the left foot, if you're a right-handed player, I always have my players take their left toe and turn it out a little bit, open it up just a little bit, about uh, 25 degrees or so, and this allows them the ability to turn through the ball uh, and get their hips to turn through the ball much easier. If you square your feet completely up uh, and, and they're perfectly square, it's very difficult for the average person. I know that I can't turn toward the target if my left toe is square. So I, I open up my left toe. If you look at Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods is pigeon-toed. So when he sets up, his feet, his toes are actually square. But the average, the majority of tour players out there, their left toe is going to be slightly open at setup. Yeah, and, and in, in some cases, particularly for our senior golfers who have uh, hip rotation issues, maybe they can't turn back. Um, I think it's even, again, not certainly as much as the, the front foot, 
but I think it's also okay to turn the back foot open just a little bit to allow them uh, to make a fuller backswing. What do you think about that, John? I think that's fine as long as they don't sway. That's uh, I would rather them, right. uh, you know, if, if they open up that right toe and those hips start swaying, that's a, um, you, we got to eliminate that because it won't matter at that point. So, but I do, uh, I have done that with some, some seniors. Uh, I try to get my, my golfers to, um, I'm always encouraging even the seniors that, that maybe feel like they're not, um, you know, young enough to do it, to do golf fitness and, and, and work on their flexibility because uh, I think you had Gary Player on about a year ago, and mm-hmm. he's uh, pretty pretty fit for his age. So it can be done. Right. Um, I'm, I always try to get people to, to, to work on their fitness and not just have a, a Band-Aid. So, uh, but, but for some players, that might be the way to go. Yeah, and especially if they've got you know f- physical issues or things like that. Uh, again, that's where they want to seek a, a healthcare professional that specializes uh, in, in those areas to have that conversation with them if they've got physical limitations and then that uh, gets sort of um, relayed to the golf uh, professional as well so that they understand what they're working with. But um, very interesting, well said. Uh, Mr. Hughes, I'm going to come back to you. And this is an area that I think a lot of, um, of our everyday golfer really struggle with. Um, you know, we look at the, the tour players. They seem to make things look so easy. You get guys like Freddie Couples and, and Ernie Els come to mind. Um, always have great tempo. Um, this is something that you want to, I guess, master, if I can use that word, is you want to master your tempo. And a great place to do that is when you're working on the range with your pro. So talk about that a little bit because, um, first off, what is the tempo? Give us an idea so that people understand. And typically, most of the better players have what we refer to as a three-to-one uh, ratio, meaning that their backswing typically is three times as long as their downswing. Downswing obviously is very quick because we're generating speed. Um, but give us an idea, an overview, if you wouldn't mind, about tempo. Sure, and this is something that I'm always trying to get my better players to understand that when their swings are a little bit off, it's probably their tempo that's off, and we just have to find where in the swing the tempo is off. As far as tempo goes, the best and easiest way for a listener to understand this is think of your favorite song and how consistent that song's beat happens. You don't hear it speed up in the middle of the song or slow down. And if there is, which is called a bridge sometimes, that bridge will still keep the same beat and then bring you back to the original song. So that time signature of that song is is the tempo and you walk to a tempo you write to a tempo you do a lot of things daily to a certain tempo one could argue it's your circadian rhythm that is your tempo now when most beginners start what happens is they try to overswing so they're swinging faster than say their natural tempo is some beginners, especially ones that are trying to be really, really perfect, will swing so slow there's not enough momentum to get the ball going. But at the same time, they will be so slow with their tempo they can't move. They're real stiff, as John had said before. A lot of times it is grip pressure causing that because they're trying to be perfect. So what happens overall with this from a tempo standpoint of view is how do you find it? How do you how do you feel that tempo? 
uh, a real quick story. When I played my best golf, the tempo that was going through my head was the theme song to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I could literally mm-hmm. hear that in my head. And at the crescendo, as, as he said, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Neighborhood was my impact position. And leading up to that was my backswing. Like he said, a little bit of three to one there. So what? sometimes when somebody's really, really struggling for it, I'll ask him to hum. And if they're humming and it gets louder as they're making the backswing, that shows me there's a lot of tension there. But if it gets louder in impact, that's actually a good thing, and that's actually showing you that you're exhaling as you're, or at least trying to exhale as you swing, and that is what you should be doing versus holding your breath. Most beginners do that. So from the standpoint of view of tempo, tempo can also be thought of as the metronome on top of the piano, that click, click, click. Think of that as turn that metronome upside down, and that's your swing. Where does the click happen? The click actually happens at the top of that metronome, which if you invert it, it's happening at the bottom of your swing. So if you can think mm-hmm. of an equal back, equal through, is it a three-to-one? No, but you can actually feel the tempo of the club coming down, striking the ball. It's up to you to allow it to finish, and that's what most people don't do, which sets the tempo off. They're so consumed with what's going on behind the ball, they forget that, hey, I've got to hit through the ball. So at the end of the day, three real good points here. Tempo, it's the beat in which you swing to, that favorite song in your head that never speeds up or slows down. Number two, can you find a song or can you hum something that will allow you to feel what your beat of, the beat of your swing is, the tempo of your swing, so you can better recognize when it's off. And C, think of tempo as that metronome. At the bottom of your swing, you're trying to have an understanding of what that tempo is at impact, not necessarily before impact. It's got to be before, during, and after. Right. Well said. And, and, you know, something, too, that we often see with a lot of uh, our our amateur players is they tend to snatch the club away. They're not actually uh, swinging club into their backswing. They're actually pulling the club back. Uh, in some cases at a very quick pace, and then ultimately what ends up happening is uh, they don't develop uh, a good, solid uh, backswing, and they don't get set into that position. So when they transition, a lot of times what you'll see is they'll rush into the downswing, and they're out of balance. You'll see them, as John pointed out earlier, um, where you'll see some people will sort of be leaning back away from their target. Uh, They get that reverse pivot because they're not actually transitioning uh, properly. And, you know, if you watch, now some of the more modern players, just as an example, uh, tend to have very quick tempos. You see a lot of these young guys on the PGA Tour have a very quick tempo. Now they still have a tempo and it still matches uh, their swing, uh, but when you look at it on, on the television, it looks like they're, you know, just whipping that club back and, and through, and really they're not um, if you really break it down. Um, that's one of the reasons why I really enjoy watching uh the, the gals on the LPJ because they tend to be a little bit more methodical. If you ever watch some of the LPJ players warming up, they're very methodical in their backswing, very slow, nice, smooth tempo going back, and then they drive through the ball uh, in through impact and end up making uh, a really great strike. And you, you'd think to yourself, well, 
you know, how are they getting the distance that they are, but it's because their timing and their tempo uh, particularly is spot on. Um, so some great points there, and I just wanted to add that because it's, it, you know, it's very difficult for a lot of people to understand that. And, you know, we focus on some of the other areas that we talked about already, which is obviously very important to be able to set up properly and to get the right equipment. But if your tempo is not uh, in sync, if you will, then your golf swing is not going to be in sync either. So uh, those are just some things I just wanted to add real quick. Um, Mr. Decker, I'm going to come back to you. And this is an area I know that you like to work on, as, as John does uh, and, and I do. And that is uh, we've got to make sure that if we want to become better players, we've got to work and practice on our short game. Um, maybe you could touch on some areas here that are important. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, if you're going to uh, lower your scores, it, it has to come from the short game. I've always equated the short game in the terms of football season getting ready to start. Uh, it's like the defense of a football team. Uh, you can take it anywhere. If I have a good short game, it doesn't matter where I go. It doesn't matter what style of golf course. It could be links. It could be a modern. It could be an old classic Donald Ross, whatever. Wherever I go, if I have a good short game, I know that when my full swing is off, and your full swing will be off on days, you're just going to have days when uh, you misclub yourself or you make poor swings or whatever the situation, and maybe the weather's bad and there's a lot of wind and you're dealing with stuff like that, and you're going to miss green. Having the ability to have a good short game is paramount. I think that we would all agree upon that. And it starts with putting. You know, putting makes up for a lot of sin. Uh, that's one thing that I look at. But the thing that – the one area that will improve your short game the most, in my opinion, is pitching. Because the average golfer does not hit the green in regulation. In fact, if you're at over an 18 handicapper, statistically, you should hit zero greens in regulation. So if you're a 25 handicapper and you say to me, wow, I'm hitting six or seven greens in regulation, then I'm saying to you, well, you're probably not a very good putter then because if you're hitting that many greens in regulation, you shouldn't be a 25 handicapper. So if you're right. missing greens, if you're missing the green in regulation, pitching is the fastest way to improve your putting. You're most likely, sometimes you're going to be in the bunker, but most of the time you're not going to be, you're going to be 30, you know, 20, 30 yards from the green, you're going to have some sort of elevation because most greens are elevated. And so you're going to have to go over bunkers. You're going to have to hit shots, to, you know, to short pins, to back pins. Learning to pitch the ball closer to the hole, in my opinion, is the fastest way to lower your score because if I pitch it up there three feet from the hole, putting becomes a lot easier. If I pitch it 20 feet from the hole, now I'm most likely going to two or sometimes three putt. So it's important that you work on the pitching. And so when, whenever students, you know, like I get a lot of emails like during the winter months because I'm up here in Ohio, and a lot of the students who I work with are working in simulators, they're hitting all these full shots. And so when they come into the spring, they're usually, their full shots are usually pretty good, but then you put them 40 or 30 yards from the green and they can't get it on the green. And so we, right. we really, that to me is the area that I would spend the most time on. And if you're going to do that, you want to try to have more. We talk about clubs. I would recommend that this, the average golfer not carry a three iron or a four iron. These long, you know, or don't carry four woods. I see people have like uh, they'll have four head covers of wood in their and, and and then a driver. And I'm thinking to myself, you'd be much better off to have more wedges. So if you really want mm -hmm. to have a good short game, I encourage you to have more than just a sand wedge. You, uh, putting a lob wedge. 
you know, a 58 or a 60-degree wedge in your bag will really help you with some of those short, tight shots that you have. Or uh, if you play on golf courses that maybe have long, big greens, then putting a gap wedge in so that you have an extra club around the green to help you. I think those are things that, that can help the average golfer, um, you know, when it comes to the short game. Yeah, there's a lot of areas. And, and I think just very quickly, John, I want to ask you, um, and, and I'm talking about a, a practice session, whether it's, um, you know, going up to the course, uh, up to the range and, and working on your game. If you had, say, an hour, what percentage of that hour? I mean, obviously you need to, uh, you know, tackle a, a lot of areas of your game. You know, you certainly want to be uh, making sure your, your driver's working well and, and things. But if you were to put percentages um, for especially for some of our higher handicap players, what percentage of that hour would you want them focusing on the various areas of their short game, and then maybe uh, the rest of it might be on on something else? What, what would be, if you were going to put a percentage on it? What would you think that would be? I think it's I, I like the percentage of fifty fifty, so that when you go to the golf course, if you have a half hour to hit balls, you spent you know fifteen minutes of full swing and fifteen minutes of chipping and putting. If you have an hour, then do a half hour, half hour. To me. That makes the most sense. Uh, unless there's something that's glaringly wrong in your game, like if you're really struggling with the bunkers or you're really struggling in putting, then you start you start spending more time in those areas and you might take away from the time uh, on things that you do well. I think Jack Nicklaus said it best. He said, I never – I was not – I heard him say this in an interview. He said, I'm not a, I was never a ball beater. If I was doing something well, he goes, I didn't work on that. I, was wor- I would always work on the things I was struggling with. And if I wasn't struggling with anything, I would be playing. So I think it's important for the beginners out there to not just get consumed with hitting drivers or not just get consumed with hitting you know, um, a long iron or a fairway wood off the fairway when they're practicing. You'd be much better served to work on the short game, in my opinion. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Mr. Hughes, I'm going to come back to you in uh, sort of two parts here. Um, obviously, we need to have a, a – I think it's important. We see this with, with the better players. Um, having a good pre-shot routine uh, is paramount. Maybe you could touch on that. But also a post-shot. Um, I don't necessarily refer to it as a post-shot routine. I look at it as more of a post-shot uh, analysis. Um, touch on those, the importance of both of those, and how we can put those together to make our golfers a little bit more successful. Sure. The number one request made of me, I'm sure John and you will identify with Mm -hmm. this, is I want to be more consistent. I can't tell you how many times I see that on my player profiles. I want to be more (laughs) consistent. And what happens is people are not consistent, not because you're hitting the ball erratically. You're going about the preparation of hitting the ball erratically, inconsistently, and that inconsistency prior to swinging is what leads to inconsistent swing. So from a pre-shot routine, that starts with identifying where your ball is, the type of shot you're going to hit, the yardage, wind and other atmospheric conditions, what is your lie, is it bare bone, is it deep in the rough, is it in the fairway? where are you on the golf course in relation to your round? Believe it or not, it's part of preparation, pre-shot routine. Pre-shot routine starts with a decision. It's basically what I'm saying. It's not necessarily the gyrations you see a Jason Day go through or uh, 
some other things that you'll see golf professionals do. That is what's considered the pre-shot routine. And what they're doing there is getting their mindset, getting committed to the decision that they've made, trying to envision themselves literally hitting that shot. And then the last part of the pre-shot routine after decision and envisionment is setting up for it and ensuring that you're well-balanced and set up for it. That's what's going to lead to consistency. So, again, pre-shot routine, think of it as three different parts. Let's make the decision, envision yourself doing it, and then let's set up for you to do it. And then as far as after the shot, I call it an evaluation. And as objective Mm -hmm. as you can get is the best you can get. What do I mean by that? Let's start with something uh, an absolute beginner can understand. Where did the ball fly in relation to your target? Did it fly dead at it? Did it go a little or a lot to the right or a little or a lot to the left? What are you trying to find out here objectively? Where was the face of the golf club at impact relative to your target? If it took off Mm -hmm. to the right of your target, you know, the face was aimed in that position at impact. Took off a little bit left. It doesn't matter whether you're right or left-handed. That face was pointing to the left at impact. It's that simple. And you can start objectively evaluating your ball flights that way. That's where all great players start. They don't try to dissect their swing. They don't try to dissect what they were thinking or feeling. They literally look at ball flight and determine, okay, where was the face of my club at impact? There are other steps beyond it, but to keep the conversation simple, understandable, and for any golfer out there to start a really good objective post-swing evaluation, start there. Start with the club face. Where was it an impact related to your target? Yeah, well said. Um, and and you're, you're exactly right in, in your analysis. I mean, you know, going back to the pre-shot routine, it's, it's really a preparation. Um, one thing I see a lot of times, and, and I'm a firm believer you know, uh, obviously whether you take one or two practice swings, is your practice swing needs to as closely mimic what your actual swing for that particular shot is going to be. You know, for instance, if you're, you know, if it's a full, sh- a sw- a, a full swing that's required, um, you're not going to swing like it's a 25-yard pitch shot uh, or vice versa. Um, a lot of times I will see players go up there and they'll just sort of sweep the club. In other words, it's kind of like, uh, it's back and forth, back and forth. It's not really an actual swing. Or I'll see people that will not actually mimic the type of shot they're about to hit at, in any shape or form. And so the likelihood of success when they actually get up and, and are ready to, to execute the shot um, are going to have a much more difficult time, in my opinion, uh, to be able to execute that shot with any sort of success because they haven't actually really practiced what they're about to 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 do. So uh, I think it's very important that you uh, again do your analysis and and understand, uh, make your decision, pick the right club as an example, uh, pick your target, and and then visualize the shot that you're wanting to make, and then mimic it in your practice swing. Uh, you know maybe one or two practice swings to get that feel down right, and then obviously set up square and and then you know obviously execute the shot. And then your uh, analysis, if you will, at the end. Uh, I think is equally important, so again, as you said, John, is to understand um, once you see what's happened, um, then again, gathering that information. And that information, too, um, is, is not just valuable for you as a player, uh, but is also valuable information the next time you go to see your coach to talk about some of the issues 
that you were faced with on the golf course uh, in your post-shot analysis, if you will. So um, great points there. Um, Mr. Decker, uh, I'm going to come back to you. And this one here, I think we all uh, want to get out and, and, and play some, some great golf. Um, but I think one of the things that we need to do is um, certainly we need to get out on the range. We need to work on certain things. But more importantly, we need to start playing more golf with a, a lot more frequency uh, to the best of you know uh, someone's ability. Um, I think you would agree with that, and it's important for them to get out. And even if it's only a matter of playing nine holes, um, if they can't uh, commit to 18 every time, I think it's vital for them to get out and actually get into a real course situation. Would you agree? And maybe you can give us some thoughts here. Absolutely, Ted. You know, one of the things um, as a PGA instructor, you know, I'm around the game every single day. Um, I'm at the golf course six days a week. I take Sundays off. And so, um, quite frankly, there's times I just get burned out. And I made a commitment this year to play more golf because I knew that I'd gotten away from the game. The reason I became a golf professional is because I love the game and I knew it was important to play. And so I'm starting to play in tournaments now and playing more golf. And I think for the listeners out there, you you don't fall into the habit if you're because there's a lot of people I see that just go and they just like to hit balls. And there's nothing wrong with hitting balls. I enjoy it sometimes, especially after a mm-hmm. long day of work. And maybe you only have an hour. Let's say you only have an hour after work, and you have to you're rushing home, and you you just want to hit some balls before dinner or whatever. Well, th- you can play the golf course on the driving range. Uh, you can actually play it, and you can play nine holes on the driving range. In, in 15 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes. If you'll just visualize every shot, hit your drive like on the first hole and just imagine where the ball went, you know, pick, pick where the ball went in relationship to your target and say, okay, I hit that one really well. Now, when I hit a really nice shot, I normally have an 8-iron into number one. And then you pull out your 8-iron and you, you get your laser out and you find a pin that fits the 8-iron and then you hit your shot. And then let's say that you hit it and you don't hit a good shot. Then you maybe – Make, okay, I missed that green to the right, and I'm going to hit a little pitch shot here. And so then you hit a little pitch shot. And you're doing this on the driving range. You essentially have your whole set of clubs up there, and you're just doing that. And then you say, okay, I hit a really nice pitch shot there. That would have been about eight feet from the pin, okay? Well, when you're done with your nine holes, you write down eight feet on a little piece of paper or whatever. And then when you're done playing your nine holes, you go over to the putting green, and you give yourself an eight-footer, and then you see if you made the putt or not. If you make the putt, you give yourself a four. If you miss the putt, you give yourself a five. So that's a simple way if you don't have a lot of time because the number one thing that people tell us when they say they can't play a lot of golf is they tell us they, uh, you know, it's the time constraint. But here in Ohio, I see people on the golf course all day long, and we're getting a lot of play up here. One thing that you I see sometimes is I see people playing too much golf and not practicing enough. And so that's mm-hmm. the flip side. I see the person that just is at the golf course every single day. They're playing, but I don't ever see them working on their game. If that's for the listeners out there, if that's you, try to dedicate a little bit more time to your practice. So instead of maybe playing, you know, um, 18 holes, you know, four or five days a week, you just start breaking it up where you're playing, um, you know, maybe practicing, taking a few lessons, getting on some sort of a structured lesson plan. And a lot of that, uh, I think a, a lot of this when I see is from uh, a lot of people who are retired and they have a lot of time. So I always mm-hmm. tell people, you know, if you're retired and you love golf, 
then make golf now your job. You know, that, so if you think about your job, you can't just always do, you know, you have a, a structure plan to what you did when you were in the working world. Try to have a structure plan uh, when you're practicing and playing the game. And so the best way to do that, I think, is to sit down with your teacher, your local PGA uh, club professional, and lay out a plan and say, okay, I'm going to play, uh, you know, a certain amount of rounds every week. I'm going to practice a certain amount, and I'm going to take some time off and I'm going to commit to some fitness. You do all those, you're, you're, you're definitely going to improve your game from an overall standpoint. Yeah, and that's a really, really great point because you're exactly right. It can, you know, as much as we want to encourage them to get out and play more, um, they can actually play too much and not practice at all. Uh, a lot of times we'll see that where they'll come out to the driving range, they've got a, uh, you know, a tee time at, at 1 o'clock, and they're coming out 10 minutes before, and they're running up to the range or driving the cart up to the range, and they're hitting a few shots. That's their warm-up, and that's about all they do. Um, sometimes, occasionally, I've seen this you know, at some of the, my local courses here where I will see some of the same people coming up, and I'll occasionally see them you know, working on parts of their game, but for the most part it's just a quick warm-up, and then they're out playing, and I see them you know, almost every day. Um, but they're not really actually working on their game. And then I hear them, you know, you hear them in conversation that when they're talking to their, to some of their buddies that, you know, well, I'm still struggling with this, I'm still struggling with that. Well, part of it, the reason is, is they're not actually working on fixing some of those areas. So you're exactly right. I think they need to get together with, uh, with uh, their local uh, club pro and put a, a game plan together, not just uh, how to play better out on the golf course, but how to prepare and how to get uh, some of the areas that they might be struggling with uh, better tuned up so that when they go out there, they're going to have a lot more fun. Um, I don't begrudge anybody, you know, playing. I wish, I wish, we probably all wish we could be out there every single day, uh, you know, playing 18, but unfortunately we've, we've got jobs to do, and you're exactly right. You have to treat it like a job if you're retired uh, and you have the ability and, and the wherewithal to be able to go out and play a lot of golf. Uh, that's fantastic, but you also have to put some practice time in there too if you truly want to get better. Uh, John, this is an area, uh, Hughes, I'm going back to now, um, this is an area, this will be our final here, um, you know, a lot of, some of our better players uh, that want to break 80 uh, consistently, um, there's really three areas, two we've, we've kind of touched on, you can certainly expand if you want on these, um, but if you're wanting to break 80 every time, these are three areas for sure that you've got to, one is, as, as uh, John Decker pointed out, is working on the short game. Another one is having a plan uh, for every shot. You're welcome, again, to touch on that. But the last one is really to master your mindset. So golfers who regularly shoot in the 70s, uh, number one, they don't get mad very uh, often, and they seem to manage their emotions instead of letting them interfere with the round. So maybe you could touch on that one specifically, and if you want to add anything on the other two, uh, by all means, go ahead. Sure. I, I would say, you know, preparing to play uh, preparing your attitude, preparing your psyche is huge for you to just play your best regardless of the scores you're shooting. It's something I'm always discussing with my clients who are trying to break the various milestones, even breaking 80, breaking 90. Uh, you, it's, it's not only about skill. It's, it's about being able to control your emotions, realize where you are on the golf course, not necessarily take score out of the equation, but put score in a relative position. And that is, where are you right now? And that's really all that matters. But at each milestone, these details 
skill-wise, I'm talking physically, they get smaller and smaller and smaller and many, many more, meaning to break 100, there's probably five or six major details. To break 90, eh, 20, 25. You want to break 80, there's a lot of details there, but you can catalog them in certain silos. But all those details have to come to fruition. Not all of them are going to. I think John mentioned before, hey, your, your ball striking might not always be there, so you're going to have to have a short game. Well, if you're best prepared, a lot of the phases of skill that you have, putting, short game, ball striking, ball striking with a driver, one or two of those is going to be off, and you're going to have to be dependent upon the others to take up the slack. But understanding that and doing it's two different things. Doing it is literally looking in the mirror, per se, and saying, you know what, that's just one shot. I got another one. Let's go on to another one, to the next one. And that's where most people, when most people adapt that kind of attitude, which is what you're hinting at, that's when mm-hmm. scores start occurring because you're not keeping score anymore. I call it task orientation. You're just focused on the one task, and that's the, that's the shot in front of you. And then when you reach a hole that, okay, you didn't do so well, you had that big number, there's still another hole to go unless you're on 18. Mm-hmm. But there's various strategies you can use with your coach to help you through that, whether it's separating 18 holes into six three-hole games and measuring your score that way and trying to stay within the moment that way so you don't get too far ahead. I do that some with clients. I also look at clients trying to break 80 more often and say, look, you've got eight holes out there where par should be the absolute highest score you make, and that's your par threes and your par fives. Uh, every mm-hmm. I, I don't see too many people breaking 80 that on a consistent basis that make any worse than par on those holes. And they let the par four sort of run the way they're going to run. Uh, the other thing as far as mentally and preparing to shoot below 80 all the time, and this we've heard a lot recently, is let's learn to make pars first. Let's not worry about the birdies. Let's learn to make pars first. I've always used the term, let's keep par in play as you're making those decisions. It tends to keep you a little bit more level-headed. If you're a little bit too high because you're coming off an eagle or if you're really, really low because you're coming off a triple, when you can reset on that next tee box, regardless of what par that next tee box is, and make a decision as to how am I going to strategize this where par is the worst score I'm going to make, even with my worst swings, even with one of the aspects of my game not fully there today. How do I do mm-hmm. How do I make par here? And what that puts you into is playing within yourself and playing to your strengths, not trying to be somebody you're not and not relying on a skill that's unreliable that day. Uh, I see that a lot. Oh, I'm a great driver of the golf ball. Okay, I put 12 out of bounds. Let me hit a 13. Really? Is that how you make? <laughs> is that how you make an 80? Um, but yet, people continue to do something like that. I know that's an extreme example, but that those little details like that, just one detail, can make or break your round. Can make the difference between a 79 and an 80. 
But I think if you sit down with your coach, and most people near that precipice do have a coach, and do a little bit more on-course work, do a little bit more work with the holes that you have trouble visioning, have a little bit more work on the holes that are the big blow-up holes, whether it's fives, threes, or fours, a particular length, particular clubs, and start working on those. It's not a weakness. It's a deficit. Start relabeling what things are. Don't ever let anybody tell you you have a weakness. It's just a deficit Mm. in comparison to your other skills. What do you do to to create a better balance of skills? And I think if you go about this a different way, breaking 80 is very obtainable. It's just a matter Mm. of being patient and literally just thinking, okay, next hole, next shot, and forget about, adding the score up until you're done. But let, but one last thing that I'm thinking about it, when you're, when you're dealing with statistics only, you tend to start getting in that mindset. Let's hit a fairway, let's hit a green, let's two-putt. Okay, I missed the fairway, how do I keep par in play? Okay, I missed the green, what two shots do I need to keep par in play? When you're thinking in that manner, it becomes a little easier to understand rationally and in turn over time, it's a lot easier to employ on the golf course. Well said. You know, I think what we often see with a lot of players is uh, I equate them to being a scoreboard watcher. Um, they're, they're more concerned about the numbers than the actual tasks at hand. And really the, the key is to get them to, to do the opposite, is to be more uh, focused on the task at hand, so whatever particular shot they may be faced with, and then worry about the score later. The score obviously is is what it is, whether you're making pars or uh, maybe dropping an occasional birdie, what have you. Um, but what's most important is whatever the task is at particular hand, whether it's a bunker shot, whether it's hitting it off the tee, um, and don't focus on anything else other than whatever that specific shot in the moment is. And we see a lot of times, you know, even even some players will catch themselves doing it. Certainly the top players don't do it, but some players will. They'll, uh, and, and I'm not saying in a, in a competitive round that it's not okay to, to kind of get an idea of where things are at. Um, but for amateur players, I mean, they're constantly adding things up on the scorecard. They're wanting to know, well, am, am I going to be on track for whatever number is in their head that they're they're trying to achieve? Um, when they just need to go out there and focus on making some good golf swings, making some um, smart decision-making uh, while they're out there on the golf course, in, improve their course management, keep their emotions in check, um, that sort of thing, picking the right clubs, making sure that they've got a target in mind. Um, so there's a lot of factors that can be very easily put together um, to make you know a player much more successful. And obviously, if you're still struggling to break 80, then doing an honest assessment of yourself and of your game, and that's something, again, your coach can help you with, your, your pro, and that is to see where you're really at. Where, what are the real areas, that, as you put it, John, the deficits uh, in your game? And those are things that you need to focus on and improve uh, in order to, to get down to that number that you want to get and break 80 consistently. So um, some great points, guys. I know we, we talk a lot uh, about some of these things uh, in the past, but I think it's important to to really bring them up uh, as often as possible because I think that for a lot of players they they get in a position where they forget the fundamentals. They, you know, some of the new players that are that have come to the game in the last couple of years, particularly, 
don't realize the importance of being fitted correctly with the right equipment. If you're going to play and you're committing to this game, then you've got to be willing to make a commitment. And again, you don't have to spend, uh, you know, oodles of money uh, to get the right equipment. You just have to make sure the equipment you do get is fitted properly for you. Uh, and then obviously there are other areas that short game and uh, uh, post and, and, and pre-shot routines, again, are important as well. So a lot of different factors there, and I think it's important for the listeners to really understand that, and I think you guys have uh, laid out the case very well. Um, as always, I'm going to give both of you an opportunity. We'll start with uh, uh, Mr. Decker, since uh, uh, John Hughes finished up uh, with the discussion. Uh, let the folks know if they want to reach out, the best way to do that, and then, John Hughes, uh, you go ahead. Well, first of all, uh, th- thank you, Ted, for uh, the opportunity to be on the show. As always, it's um, a privilege, and I really appreciate everything that you do in giving us a, a forum to stand up and, and talk and about the game we all love. And, John, as always, I enjoy being on the show with you and um, have a great time. And uh, when you're in Georgia, it sounds like a great, great spot. Um, if, for the listeners out there, if you want to um, – to get in touch with me, uh, one of the best ways to do it is go on my new website. It's called DeckerGolf.com. And uh, on the website, I have my videos. I have full swing, short game, putting, chipping, all of all that, golf fitness videos as well, um, and course management videos. So they're all uh, on the website. So I, I invite you to the website um, and, and also have uh, information about my the magazine, Golf Tips Magazine. Um, and some of the articles that I've written for the magazine are on there as well. Uh, if you want to reach me on social media, I go to Facebook, uh, Instagram, YouTube, or LinkedIn, and just put in John Decker, and I spell my first name, J-O-N, and you, you can pull me up and um, feel free to uh, reach out to me. Uh, um, I've got videos on, on those platforms as well. My book, Golf Is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, is uh, available on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and Walmart.com. And uh, also, I have an audio book out now. The, the, the book is now in audio book form, I should say. And it's available on Amazon, Audible, or iTunes. And again, uh, Ted, the, the magazine and allowing uh, John and I to both write for the be senior editors for the magazine. So, uh, I hope all the listeners out there will subscribe to the magazine. I think it's um, a great a great features uh, that we have each each week and. Uh, one of my, my features that I'm really proud about is, and, and besides doing the instructional articles and stuff, is the Fairways to Heaven, which is a, um, an article. It's more of a Christian-based um, uh, article with golf in it, and I really uh, am thankful that you are allowing uh, me to write that for the magazine. So, uh, to the listeners out there, I hope that you will subscribe to the magazine, and thank you for your time. All right, thank you, John, as always, and Mr. Hughes, go ahead. Again, thanks, Ted. It's always a great opportunity to share and very much appreciate the longevity of doing that with you. Uh, Looking forward to more. John Decker, uh, always great points. Thank you. As you do me, I do you. I learn quite a bit when I'm on with you and very much appreciate the opportunity there. Uh, When I started my company, I made it real simple. John Hughes Golf at a ampersand, hashtag, whatever it is, dot com, and that's how you're going to find me. Again, Macklemore in October, October 7 through 17, you'll find information there on my website that way. Uh, Also, come visit me, uh, Falcons Fire Golf Club in Kissimmee, Florida, the western part of the Orlando area. 
I uh, got a lot of great things happening here in at Falcons, a lot of great programs and would love the opportunity to help assist you in improving your golf skills, making you a better golfer. Perfect. Well, guys, as always, thank you very much for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live, and especially the Coach's Corner panel. Uh, always good to get your thoughts and input into the game and see how we can help uh, some of our amateur golfers out there become a little bit better. So uh, uh, until next time, guys, have a great weekend, a great rest of your week, and we'll see you next time on the Coach's Corner panel. All right, that was my very special guest, John Hughes and John Decker. And when we come back after a quick message, I'll be joined by my very special guest this evening, uh, Charlie Meacham. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple-to-follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory and apparel reviews, golf destinations and travel tips for every budget, and so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to GolfTipsMag.com and subscribe today. All right, welcome back to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and we've got a very special guest this evening uh, here to talk about uh, a book that he's written. We'll tell you about that here in just a moment. Uh, of course, I'm talking about the uh, one of the former LPJ commissioners, uh, Charlie Meacham. Let me tell you just a little bit about him, and then we'll bring him on. Uh, Charlie was a lawyer at one point uh, for Cincinnati's prestigious law firm, Taft, uh, Statinius, and Hollister. Uh, he was also a business executive uh, who headed the Taft Broadcasting Empire of Media Outlets, uh, Hanna-Barbera, uh, Kings Island Amusement Park, uh, and as I mentioned, he was also uh, previously a commissioner for the LPJ uh, pro- uh, Golf Professionals, and he was also a longtime consultant and advisor to Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas. Uh, and he's here to talk about his book, Arnie and Jack. So please welcome my very special guest this evening, Charlie Meacham. Good evening, Charlie. Thank welcome you. to Golf Talk Live. Well, it's thank my you for pleasure. joining me. I'm really delighted to be with you. Well, I appreciate it. Before we get into the book, and we are, we've got uh, quite a bit of time here, so we're going to get into the book this evening, but uh, I want to ask you, and I, I normally do this with, with most people that have come on for the first time, uh, is just to get a little background of, of their golfing experience, if you will, uh, whether they're yeah. a player, whether they're a teacher, what have you. So you've obviously had a long passion for the game. When did that passion begin for you? Well, I've, it's funny. I grew up in a little town in southeastern Ohio, and there wasn't any golf course there. There was a nine-hole course a few miles up the road, and I and three of my buddies started playing. We had absolutely no idea what we were doing, but we had a lot of fun doing it. It was the camaraderie camaraderie that really was important to me, and frankly, it's always been that way. Um, To digress a little bit, I've never cared much about my score. Uh, I've mm-hmm. always loved golf because of the camaraderie, opportunities it presents, and the venues that it allows you to visit. I don't, I don't mean that I don't like to play well, but if I don't <laughs> play well, it's, it's not the end of the day for me. Anyway, right. that's how I started, and then uh, I laid off golf for a long time. I uh, had so many other things going on, but then... Um, 
we sponsored a, I met Nicholas, and we sponsored a PGA Tour event at a golf course that Jack had built for my company, Tap Broadcasting. And then I began to get back into to plan, and then after that came the LPGA, and for, for my five years, it was the LPGA. I played in a pro-am every day for five years, and I, I didn't get any better, but I sure had fun. Well, that's the thing. And, and why do you think it is, and just a, sort of a follow-up question on that, why do you think it is that so many people um, sort of get bitten by the bug? I mean, we, we, there's some of us that go out there and, you know, can play. I, I teach golf, so obviously I've uh, been around the game right. for a long time. But, you know, there's a lot of folks, out, a lot of, uh, especially newcomers uh, to, the, to the game over the last couple of years with, with the lockdowns and that, and not much to do. So golf was one of the, one of the uh, respites, if you will. Yeah, um, but yeah. what do you, what do you think it is about the game that just seems to lure us all in? What is it about golf? I mean, there's so many other sports out there that you can have fun at. What is it about golf that does that? Do you think? Because it's so absolutely in uncomparable, <laughs> uncomparable. <laughs> uh, you know, most I can't tell you how many times in my LPGA days, uh, professional athletes would come out to play in a pro am. Uh, Baseball players, hockey players, basketball players, mm-hmm. and they it, it drove them crazy because they couldn't understand why they couldn't be as good at golf as they were in their other in the other sports. Right. And I, I, I think the challenge of golf is is what really makes it irresistible. You just can't believe that you can't do it better better than you're doing it. <laughs> You're exactly right. And, you know, it's amazing, too, Charlie, how many uh, professional sports people now, uh, you know, once their their uh, uh, first career has sort of ended in, in whether it's football, baseball, what you know, whatever it is. Yeah, um, yeah. They almost all, I won't say every one of them, but almost all. I mean, how many NFL Hall of Famers are playing golf now? How many basketball, oh, yeah. you know, you name it, they're all playing golf. Some of them are on celebrity tours. You know, some of them are just out having fun with their, with their their buddies that they used to, you know, beat one another up on the football field. Now they're out beating each other on the golf course. So you're right. I, I think it's a camaraderie. Yeah, they're doing it because they're still trying to conquer the game. <laughs> yeah. It 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 really is uh, sad because they'll never never conquer the game. <laughs> but that's what keeps us all coming back. Right. Exactly. And I think it's you know also too is. Golf is one of these games that, you know, you can hit a hundred bad shots, but you hit that one good shot, whether it's the driver or you get close to the to the hole on the green yeah, yeah. with your approach. You hit that one good shot, and the rest of the day could just be miserable, but that one good shot will bring you back tomorrow. You're, you're right. right. And, and another way to, to put that is that it's the only sport that I know where for one golden moment you can hit a shot as good as the greatest golfer in history. Uh, I know of no no other sport where you can do that. But you can either hit a pure four iron or hit a a, a beautiful wedge uh, as well as the best that ever played. And I don't think there's another sport where you can do that. No, no. I I don't stand in front of a a 95-mile-an-hour fastball anytime soon, but I will step up to the tee box and, uh, exactly, and have a good drive. Exactly, exactly. 
<laughs> yeah, I'll leave that you know, every for, now for the and other then, folks. Every now and then you'll, you'll hit one so pure that you think, my mm. God, Nicholas or, or Woods, nobody can do it any better than that. But that doesn't <laughs> last until the next shot. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately we can't uh, uh, copy and repeat that every single shot. You're exactly That's right. right. I, exactly. I just want to I want to touch on real quick just a little bit about the LPGA. I want to get your thoughts on on that uh, arena, and then we'll we'll dive into to the book. Uh, okay. So, you, as I mentioned, you were obviously commissioner for uh, five years on the LPGA. When you right. look back to the players and and what you saw out there then, to what you're seeing now, um, what is your thoughts as how far the LPGA has advanced over the last couple of decades? Uh, sky's the limit. When I became commissioner, it was at a very difficult time for the tour because um, they'd had problems with their commissioner, and mm-hmm. uh, the senior tour featuring uh, Arnold and Jack and Lee and others was just coming on the scene, so the mood right. of the players was, was pretty pretty low. So at the first mm-hmm. player meeting, I've never forgotten this, one of the players got up and said, Mr. Meacham, what do you think is our biggest problem? And I said, well, I'll tell you exactly what I think. I think you have a massive institutional inferiority complex. You don't believe mm-hmm. in yourself. You don't care about yourself. And I said, look, first thing I want to do as commissioner, I'm determined to make you proud of yourself and proud of what mm-hmm. you're doing. I said, look, nobody else is going to worry about you. The PGA Tour is not going to worry about you. The Senior Tour is not going to worry about you. But you are great players. You're wonderful ambassadors. And you're held a lot, frankly, you're held a lot better at interacting <laughs> with, with amateurs than, than right. the other tours. So uh, be proud of yourself. Walk out of the, of the uh, locker room and onto the, onto the first tee. Uh, proud of yourself feeling good about yourself and that's and they did that and so i've always felt that that was a turning point and a, an important one in, in getting them to feel good about themselves now of course since then obviously an enormous amount of talent uh, foreign and domestic has has come forth so i don't think the lpga has ever been stronger and i i think it will only get better yeah i, I couldn't agree and, and definitely some uh, wonderful words of wisdom that you you gave those ladies uh, at that time. Uh, so true. They, they I, I enjoy that I'll be, because I'll, it was pretty tough. Yeah, I'll be honest. I, I've had the pleasure of of speaking with uh, a couple of the founders here on the program. Uh, Shirley mm-hmm. Spork, who of course is no longer with us, and Marilyn right. Smith, uh, another right. one as well, who unfortunately is no longer with us. But uh, right. Um, and you know, they were both very very passionate uh, about this game, and they worked hard to really help develop uh, the LPJ tour and um, you know really helped to develop the the LPJ legacy but you're right it's been a it's been a long process and we're starting to see the the benefits of all the hard work that's gone on in in the decades before and it's just amazing you know I, I uh, very quickly and then we'll I promise we'll come to your book um, I had the pleasure this past this past winter of uh, watching uh, a couple of the sessions of the LPGA Q series, which is, uh, you know, obviously the young ladies that are trying to get their LPGA yeah. cards. 
and they were playing at one of the local courses, so I went to watch them. And it's just amazing the dedication and how hard these young girls work at their game every day. The crack of dawn, they're up there, they're on the range, they're on the putting uh, practice greens and out of bunkers and whatnot, and they haven't even stepped at the first tee yet, and they're out there a good hour or two before their round. And then they go out and do it, and then some of them, many of them come back after their round and go through the same process again. To That's the their thing, days. frankly, that impressed me the most uh, was how dedicated these young ladies were and how uh, really committed they were. And I, mm-hmm. I just plain fell in love with them during my five years, and I still do. <laughs> so uh, I, I think the future is very bright. Yeah, I, I think so as well, and, and um, I'm, I'm very excited. And I, and I enjoy, to be honest, uh, and this is not, not a criticism to the guys, but I actually enjoy watching the young ladies play um, on the LPGA oh, yeah. and, and obviously uh, the Epson Tour now, of course, which is the, the feeder to the LPGA. Um, yeah. They're just yeah. great. They're, they're a lot of fun. They're, they've got some great personalities. And, again, it's a, a much more international field now, which is great for the game as it well is. as it, it continues to grow and, and expand. All right, as I it, said, it, I promise we're going to get – yeah. Okay. As I promised, we're going to get to your book, uh, Arnie and Jack. Um, first obvious question, what made you decide to write this book? I was approached by the uh, president of the club where I live in the wintertime down in La Quinta, California, the tradition, which is a course in Arnie design. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said to me, Charlie, I've been thinking you may be – one of the very few people, maybe the only one, that knew Jack and Arnie intimately at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, I, I, I can't say I was the only one, but there weren't very many. And he said, right. would you make a um, talk to the membership of the club and just share some memories? And I did that, and it really went over <laughs> really quite well. <laughs> and I was urged after I made that talk to do a book. Uh, I, I learned, by the way, that translating a speech into a book is no small task. But uh, <laughs> I did that, and that's what that's what the, made the book. Very good. Um, we're we're going to obviously have you share uh, a few uh, memorable moments of both players. Um, but first, I want to ask you um, of the two, um, because they obviously were uniquely different, uh, both legends of the game. Who is the most competitive, do you think, of the two, uh, if you were to assess it that way? In, in their own way, I could not distinguish between the two. Um, I think they were both equally competitive. You can't – I don't think you can play at that level um, and not be competitive. So I would decline to pick one or the other. I would just say each of them would be a model of competitiveness for anybody who was looking. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And what was interesting, of course, Arnold uh, was was sort of leading the way first, and then Jack sort of came along. And what I always right. found interesting, and you, you can probably uh, expand on this a little bit more, but what was really, really interesting is, uh, and people that, that you know grew up in those earlier times, like myself, and um, right. you know, will remember this, but... Um, you know, Jack was not very well received when he first came out because Arnold at that point had established, uh, was established the king, if you will. And yes. Jack was not really very well received. And what really struck me and said a lot about Arnie's character 
was he basically, literally actually, put his arm around Jack and embraced him and said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, um, it's going to be okay and, and you're a great player and you're gonna have, you've got a bright future, the whole bit. Um, that's not yep. something that you see a lot of. Talk about you that a little bit. Little because that was, you're, right, you're exactly. absolutely right. Um, Arnie did not. Arnie's, Jack once said to me, I never had any problem with Arnie. My problem was with Arnie's army. And uh, <laughs> that's probably right, because there were a lot of, as you just alluded, a lot of ugly comments, fat mm-hmm. Jack and all that. Um, right. But Jack, I'm not even sure Jack ever heard it. He, his concentration level was beyond anything I've ever seen. Um, and, and Arnie, uh, I'm sure, heard it, but never encouraged it. So it's, it's mm-hmm. a measure, you know, in many ways, it's a measure of how competitors should, should deal with one another, is how those guys, the, the king and the challenger, handled those days, because they were tough days. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, it was early at that point too. Um, golf has was literally coming to television, yeah. Uh, yeah. So people were actually seeing uh, the game, and it was important. And, and Arnold was, was, I mean, both them in their own rights, but Arnold was such a great ambassador for this game um, right. in right. so many ways. Right. Just by by his, you know, his humility. He was just very humble, um, just a, a down to earth kind of guy, um, and. You know, just the fact that he would do something like that for a competitor uh, and make him feel no, so I, welcome. I spent and, you know. God knows how many hours with Arnie um, alone, and he did not have a mean or nasty mm-hmm. bone in his body. He just didn't. He was just a yeah. genuinely nice guy. And mm-hmm. I guess this is in the book, and you were maybe going to allude to it anyway, but uh, I once... Uh, I said to Arnie, you know, to me, when you've really reached maturity is when you meet somebody who is better at what they do than you are at what you do. And he Mm -hmm. said, that was Jack, absolutely. So he had great admiration for Jack. And, of course, there's that great quote when uh, he said, uh, well, the the bear's out of the cage. We all better (laughs) take a run. (laughs) So... <laughs> but they 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 really genuinely respected and admired one another. Yeah, and and I mean they they competed in so many levels, not just on the golf course, but uh, professionally oh, yeah. as well. I mean, obviously, both of them went on to become uh, great golf architects, uh, developing right. golf courses all over the world, um, right. and you know, a variety of other uh, business ventures and that they were very competitive uh, in a lot of ways. But they were always, you know. Um, you know, had a, had a friendship that they had developed for for years as well. So, share some some yeah. memories. What were some of the the fondest memories? I mean, I'm I'm sure you've well, you've got obviously a book full of them, but uh, share a couple that really stand out for you uh, about both of them. Um, with uh, with Arnie, one of the funniest things I remember is he and his wife came to visit my wife and I. Um, at um, where we were living up in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and I took them. We took them up to the uh, the Jenny Lake Lodge, which is sort of a famous old lodge up near the base of the Tetons. And we found a little table near the back of the room, and we sat down, ordered a drink, and after uh, 
a few moments, Arnie said, well, I'm going to get up and stretch my legs. And so he got up, and he left the table, and Winnie, Winnie Palmer, his first wife, said, right. well, he just needs, just needs a few autographs. <laughs> so he came back about 10 minutes later, and he said, well, you know, there's still a few people around here who know me. And so right. we talked about that a lot, and we were together alone one night at the uh, members' lounge in, at Bay Hill. And he mm-hmm. said, you know, Charlie, I can't be alone. I need people. And I said, Arnie, right. you need people, but people need you even more. I said, to me, people are your oxygen, and you are mm-hmm. the same for them. And he said, you know, I never thought about it that way, but I really believed that that, that was really important. He, it, having the galleries act and react, as he did, was very, very important to him. Jack, on the other hand, uh, until late in his career, his focus was such, I I always remember, I think this is in the book, if not, if it isn't, it should be. Uh, I had my first business deal with Jack was in Jacksonville, Florida, where we made some kind of a deal. I can't remember now what it was, but the first time I'd ever spent a lot of time with him so the next day, I went out to the golf course where they were playing a tournament, and I positioned myself on one hole where he would have to walk right by me from the from the green to the next tee. So as he walked by me, he looked me straight in the eye and didn't bat a, a link, a wink. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? So I ran into one of his guys a little later, and I said, did, did I upset Jack somehow last night? Said, what do you mean? I said, well, he... <laughs> He walked right by me, and he didn't even look at me. He said, Charlie, he never even saw you. He said, when he plays golf, <laughs> he only sees what's the golf. And that, I've never forgotten that because that was true. So uh, they yeah, were different, but they were a lot alike, too. Yeah, they're, they're obviously their personalities were, were much different, but I agree with that. You know, when you would watch Jack on, you know, obviously I'm, uh, I've, I've seen him both live and, and on television, but... Um, his focus was was such uh, intent um, that you know it didn't matter what was going on around him. It was almost like he was the only one out there, and it was very very That's interesting to to watch him. And and with the exceptions in in and again depending on who you talk to, um, Tiger is about the only one that's even come close um, to that in in more modern times. Because most of the other players, I, I've said the same um, thing. Uh, I wasn't around enough with Hogan, but he would probably be in that same category. Right. Very few. It's like once in a millennial, you know, that somebody comes along right. like that. And Jack was, you know, as I said, I've heard that about Hogan as well. And obviously Jack and then, you know, Morrissey. But, but when you look at today's players, I mean, you don't see that. Um, you know, you no, see some no, great ball no. strikers and uh, some great distance guys, but you don't see anybody with that kind of intent. And that's why both okay. Jack and yeah. – Right, and and Tiger went on to win so many tournaments. Um, I mean, they they just, you know, because Jack, by his own admission, I remember watching a number of interviews that he had done over the years. He said, you know, I wasn't the greatest wedge player. Uh, you know, I was obviously a great, uh, good putter yeah. in that. Um, but, you know, compared to some of the other guys, he wasn't the greatest. But he was just, it was almost like he willed the ball into the hole. Um, and, you know, I've, um, I've often said if, <laughs> if Rory McIlroy had that kind of focus 
he would have won 50 tournaments by now. Um, <laughs> you got to have the focus to to really play great. Yep, and and they had a they had a specific um, agenda. You know, they they both come out, Jack. Yeah. Uh, obviously, uh, the majors were were what was important to him. That didn't mean he didn't play other right. tournaments. Um, and and that was what his focus. I want to go back to this is uh, from the book, and uh, I want yeah. you to share the story. I think the the listeners would would enjoy this. Um, for those that don't know, the World Golf Hall of Fame, uh, both Jack and Arnie collaborated uh, on a design of the King and the Bear uh, right. yeah. for the <laughs> World Golf Hall of Fame. Uh, you yeah. had something to do with that. Why don't you share that story with us? This is one of my favorite memories. I had a call one day from from um, the commissioner of the PGA Tour, Tim Fincham, and I laughed and I said, "Tim, uh, this is uh, this is kind of an historic moment when the commissioner of the PGA Tour calls the commissioner of the LPGA. What's on your mind?" <laughs> right. He said, "Charlie, I want Jack and Arnie." to collaborate on a golf course at the World Golf Hall of Fame. We'll call it the King and the Bear. It's going to be a good golf course, but I can't get them to do it. They, 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 they say, oh, we can't do it time, and we do things differently. And he said, would you give it a try? And I said, well, Tim, <laughs> I can't <laughs> promise anything, but sure, I'll try. So I had a couple of meetings, each with Jack and with Arnie, and I got the same answer that, you know, uh, we don't have time, we do things differently, and blah, blah, blah. So one day I just kind of ran out of patience, and I said to Jack, I said, look, Jack, fine, I'm not going to bring this up again, but don't come to me when they ask you to play on the Trevino Player Golf Course. (laughs) He said, what, what, what? (laughs) I said, you don't think they're, if you guys don't do it, you don't think they're going to stop. They're going to go to Lee and Gary, and they're going to play it. And I, he said, oh, my God. So I did the same thing with Arnie, and I think they broke ground with, within a couple of weeks. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. <laughs> That's a great story. That's a 100% true story. You know, it, it, it What's interesting about it, though, and, and you know, when I was preparing for tonight, I read through obviously a lot of the different notes and things, and and yeah. you know, you 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 talk about how they basically said, look, you know, we we design differently, our approaches are differently. It's just not gonna, right. you know, there was not the willingness to do that, and it was not that they didn't respect one another or what have oh, you, no, not at but all. it's it's just they had a different approach to things. But um, yeah, it, it, giving. Uh, Trevino or player a leg up on either one of them was not going to was not going to suit well, suit well. Talk so I about can understand being, that. Being competitive, if they thought there was going to be a player Trevino course, there, look out. You're right. <laughs> Very true. You know, and that's a good story. And again, I'm glad you brought it up. Well, I enjoy it. You know, I enjoy listening to uh, a lot of these and. And um, you know, I, I know it's a, 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 a great book, and I know people are, are going to enjoy that, especially those that, uh, not just those that knew, uh, and I don't mean necessarily on an intimate basis, but that knew of yeah. Arnie and Jack and followed their careers. But I think people that obviously have, have heard of them, some of the newer players, younger players coming up, uh, and yes, I don't mean yes, PGA yes. or LPJ, um, are going to say, you know what, I don't really know that much about either one, and it kind of you know gives you an, an in-depth and a personal look at both of them because. Again, you know, for for most average folks out there, um, 
as friendly as they are, they're still in some people's mind kind of untouchable. You know, here they are, the the king and the bear, and they're out there. Yep. Yep. Um, even though they were very generous with their time in, in, in some respects, it's just they played at a whole different level than the average person does. So to get a sort of a sneak peek into their into their lives a little bit from somebody that knew them as well as you did um, just makes it that much more special, I think. Well, thank you, and I'll tell you this story. I don't honestly remember whether it's in the book or not, but I played Jack with, with Jack at the Bears Club years ago, and we it was a, foot, a Saturday afternoon. We went back to his house. And he got in his uh, uh, lounger chair and pushed back and turned on the TV and watched football. Within 10 minutes, he must have had 10 grandkids just all over him. Uh, oh, yeah. And I, I remember thinking to myself, God, I wish the rest of the world could see this moment. Because here's a guy that loves his family loves his wife, Barbara, who's one of the greatest human beings that ever lived. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but you don't see that side of him. I think you saw more of it as time went by. But at that right. moment, I remember thinking, boy, oh, boy. So, and, and Arnie, of course, the same way. They, were, they just loved life. They loved people. And uh, it, it just came out in different ways, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. They, they were very unique, um, and, and as I said, both great ambassadors to the game for for different reasons, of course. But yeah. um, it was it was a time really in golf that for a young man like myself that was growing up, actually a young boy that was growing up, um, you know, Arnold was a little bit before my time. Jack was still in the in the, the heat of things when. Right. When I uh, right. first started to really watch, and you know, he was just like, you know, one day I want to, you know, get out there and battle it out with Jack Nicholas. He was just had such a presence, such a focus, oh. um, and was just fun to watch. Um, you know, he, uh, you, you, I've you, often said, uh, Arnie played golf because he loved the game. He played mm-hmm. because he loved it. Jack played because of the competitive fever. Um, and that's why, you know, if people go back and look at the record of how many firsts and seconds and thirds he had over the years, it's unbelievable. Right. But Jack Jack loved the game, but he loved it in a very different way than Arnie. Arnie didn't give right. a damn whether he shot 90 or 100. He just loved to play. And uh, Jack wanted to win. So I, I just loved them both. And by the way, I'll tell you one story that – People seem to love when when Kit, his second wife, and Arnie got married. They got married in mm-hmm. Hawaii, and Arnie called me, and he said, uh, "Hey, you always told me if we got married to give you a call because I was still in Bay at Bay Hill." And I mm-hmm. said, "Yeah, I gather you did get married." He said, "Yeah, we we did." Well, I learned later what happened was that Kit found this Justice of Peace, a little Japanese lady. <laughs> way out in the wilds of Hawaii. So they drove out there to get married, and on the way, Kit said to Arnie, now, Arnie, you were in the middle of nowhere. There's a little Japanese lady, justice of the peace. She won't probably have any idea who you are, so don't be offended if she doesn't know who you, who you are. So right. uh, Arnie said, no, no, no problem. So they get married. And as they're going out the door, 
the little JP says, hey, ma'am, do you realize how lucky you are? <laughs> and it, it just blew Arnie away. <laughs> his fame his fame was worldwide. Yeah, I, I remember, you know, uh, the many commercials he did over the years, a variety of different products, of course, but... Um, yeah. You know, he just was, uh, you know, not only was he a great ambassador of the game, but he was uh, an incredible salesman as well. Um, oh, you know, he just, yes, yes. And, and, you know, I, I remember people that never even followed golf um, remember his commercials and actually started watching golf when, when of course, it became televised um, simply because they they just liked him watching him in the commercials. And by the way, he, he's he's also a professional golfer. Well, I got to check this out, and people just fell in love with him. So it was people Absolutely that never right. saw him hit a golf ball fell in love with him just because of of his his demeanor and and his. But I got to share a real quick story with you, and I, I don't recall the gentleman's name, but he used to work at Bay Hill, and he told me this story. Uh, he was driving in a golf cart one very early in the morning, about six thirty or so. And he noticed in the distance there was a, a, a man. He didn't recognize who it was at first, and he was sort of stooping down in the bushes and whatnot. And as he drove up, of course, he recognized it was Arnold Palmer. And he said, "Good morning, Mr. Palmer." He said, "What are you doing?" And without a, uh, I'm not stretching this at all. He said Arnold Palmer was out there at six six thirty in the morning, um, picking up cigarette butts from the oh, rough yeah. and from yeah. the. And throwing him in a can, and, and just and he just said, you know what, I was uh, got up early. It was a beautiful day, and he said, I'm just out here doing a little, you know, cleaning up and stuff like that. And he said to me, he, the gentleman, I had him on my show, and he was telling this story, and I, you know, I sort of glossed over it. But what he said, what was really interesting, he said I had even a greater appreciation for Arnold Palmer at that moment because he said, here's a man, and this is you know quite late into Mr. Palmer's career, yeah. who has you know developed incredible wealth, success, but he said he was not too humble to get out there and, and you know, do a little cleanup. Nothing major, but just, you know, a uh, little cleanup on Bay Hill. Yeah, I've he often said, that, said just, that he was 100% the same in private and in public. And you can't say that yeah. about very many celebrities, but he was. Right. He was the same guy uh, in in the office as he was on the golf course. Yeah, yep. I, I couldn't agree more. Now, you also had two forwards in the book. Jack did one, and then Doc uh, Giffen did the other one. Tell us a little bit about Yeah. I'm sorry. Tell us Say a little bit again. about that. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. You got Jack to do uh, forward, and he also, Doc Giffen, had one as well. Yeah, uh, well, which, Jack of course, was, was Arnold Palmer's. Uh, yeah. Jack was very gracious. Uh, Arnie had passed away, so I, mm. I asked his... Uh, long, long, long time assistant, uh, mm-hmm. Doc Giffen. And uh, Doc is one of the most amazing men. We've been dear friends for God knows how many years. And Doc uh, uh, was truly Arnold's closest associate, wrote, wrote all of his speeches, all of his press comments, and still living in the uh, in Latrobe, and just mm-hmm. one, a wonderful, wonderful man. So I was thrilled and honored that Doc was willing to do a, an, a, a forward for me. Yeah, very good. Um, you know, it, it's it's interesting when I look back and I, you know, I think of both of these 
um, again, legends of the game. And not just their personalities, not just their ability um, of what they could do on the course, but really what they've done. And, and I don't. And I often wonder if um, the players of today, much like I was alluding to earlier with the LPJ, really fully appreciate what both of these. And, and obviously, there were some others that, that followed afterwards, but particularly these two, what they really did for the game. Because you know, we we no, sort of gloss no, over it. That's life. I, I will tell you a f- story that I've never forgotten. I took the great Louise Suggs, one of the founders and one of the great players in the LPJ's history, to a tournament one day. And we were walking by the putting green, and I just took her up and introduced her to this young player who was putting, first-year gal. And uh, the gal was polite, but she obviously had no idea who Louise Suggs was. So we right. walked on, and I said, Louise, give me a couple of minutes. Sit down here and have a Coke. I'll be back. So I went back to this player, and I said, uh, uh, young lady, my name is Charlie Meacham. I'm the commissioner of the tour. Um, hold on a minute. I'll be down in a minute. Um, and uh, uh, did you know who that was? And she kind of shook her head, and I said, well, would, would, would you like to win this tournament? And, well, I'd love to win this tournament. I said, well, the lady that you just brushed off won 54 of them. <laughs> she, she just about had a heart attack. So I brought Louise back, and this young lady apologized to her. But it's just amazing how time fly, time goes by and people forget. And sadly, that's the way it is. But it'll yeah. be a long time, I think, and hope that anybody forgets Arnie and Jack. I I, I think you're you're uh, probably right there. What do you we'll want see. to be the biggest takeaway from this book? When people buy and, and read this book, what's the biggest takeaway you want? I mean, my, people have heard stories of both of them for years, and some of them knew them, some of them didn't. Uh, but what's the biggest takeaway you want uh, this book? I think the biggest takeaway for me is to understand how genuinely – humble and uh, unforgettable these two guys were. They were probably two of the greatest figures in sports in history, and yet they were, and I hope these stories show, very genuine human beings. So that's the main takeaway for me. I think that's a great takeaway. Um, Charlie, where can folks, if they want to pick up a copy of your book, uh, where is it available? It's available on Amazon, and we're, we're having good luck with, uh, with that. And so that would be the place to go to get it the quickest. Perfect. Well, Charlie, I want to thank you very much for coming on and, and uh, sharing a little bit about uh, two legends of the game who I obviously enjoyed watching growing up. And uh, I know that they've uh, certainly left a, a long-lasting uh, impression on on me and and uh, part of the reason I do what I do. Uh, obviously, I never I never <laughs> as the fact that you don't know who I am means I never made it to to battle out Jack Nicholas on the golf course. Uh, so I had to go a different route. But uh, otherwise, maybe you would have done a book about me. Who knows? But um, well, you've done obviously, you know, I obviously very well, and I would be more than <laughs> pleased to do a book about you. So give me some background. <laughs> uh, well, it I won't really take it won't take long. <laughs> it won't take okay. long, trust me. Well, uh, it might be a very short chapter. Visit with you. These two guys were dear.
dear friends, and of course great golfers, but more than that to me, just great people I spent time with and loved spending time with, and I'm really so pleased that you gave me the opportunity to share some of those thoughts. We could go on here and on and on and on, (laughs) but bottom line is these are two great, not just golfers, two great human beings, and to the extent that the book can, can, can spare some of that and make some of that more understandable and believable, uh, then I'm happy. That sounds good to me. What a great way to end this segment. Uh, Charlie, thank Thank you very much much. for joining me this evening. Uh, It's a pleasure. Uh, The book is called Arnie and Jack, and it's available at Amazon.com. Charlie, thank you again. Have a great evening, and I hope you'll come back and join me again sometime. Let's do this again sometime. We've got a lot more to talk about. Uh, that sounds good. Okay. Thank you, and have a great Very evening, good. Charlie. Bye-bye. Uh, all right, good night. All right, that was former LPJ commissioner and author of Arnie and Jack, uh, sharing a few uh, poignant memories, if you will, of uh, both uh, the legends uh, Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas, uh, who he got to know very, very well over uh, many, many years and had the pleasure of knowing them uh, quite intimately, as he, as he uh, alluded to early on. I hope you join listening to that. And again, if you go to Amazon.com and just type in Arnie and Jack, you will see uh, the book by Charlie uh, Meacham. A lot of great uh, personal stories in there on both and a lot of great memories shared uh, as well. So I hope you'll go out and check that out. Uh, we got the holidays coming up in a few months. It might make for a great gift for that golfer in your family. All right, I want to, again, a special thanks to John Hughes and John Decker for joining me earlier on the Coach's Corner panel. Always enjoy that. And once again, a uh, very uh, heartfelt thank you to my special guest this evening, Charlie Meacham, author of Arnie and Jack. God bless everybody. I hope you'll see me, uh, join me next week here on Golf Talk Live for another great panel discussion and another insightful interview with my special guest. God bless and have a great weekend, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.